Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to those here online and at all of our locations this morning. I'm Laura Gilbertson, and I am part of the teaching team here at Westwood. I'm so glad to be with you, but I admit I am a little tired this morning and have been for the week because, perhaps like you, uh, our family has been staying up a little too late to watch Olympic highlights. Anyone else been doing that? Um, so just to make sure that we're all awake, I'm going to ask you if you are online to type into the chat or if you are here in person together, turn to the person near you and tell them what is your favorite Olympic sport to watch in the summer games. You have 10 seconds. Running? All right, so I'm hearing lots of chatter. Apparently you like the summer games. I heard some running, I know swimming. I heard Pastor Mark Nelson say earlier, it's ping pong. <laughs> if any of you have been watching table tennis, I did catch a bit of it and uh, I don't know how they serve, how they contort their bodies, but it's pretty fun. I have really enjoyed synchronized diving any of you? Oh, yes. I know. It's all so fun. So I am not a big sports fan, but I can get into the Olympics. Maybe it's because there are all these different events. I don't know. But I, I think just the opening ceremony itself kind of pulls me in because it captivates me as I watch flags carried in by each of the nations. This year, there were 205 flags that came in during the Parade of Nations. There was also one team of refugees who don't have a country. So all together, we had this beautiful picture of flags coming in. And uh, my husband, John, and I and the kids, as we were watching that Parade of Nations, we took turns looking up facts on our, our devices. And we were interested in things like, what are the cultural traditions of these countries? Or uh, we looked up things like, um, you know, what's their population size? Those kinds of geography. Did you know that there are countries competing in the Olympics that are smaller than Chanhassen? I think that's so interesting. I just love all this stuff. So in addition to all the trivia, um, the Parade of Nations kept my mind going to Revelation 7, 9, which is a scripture that gives us a view to the future when a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language will come together before the throne of God and worship Jesus, who is Lord of all. And that parade of nations with all those people, it helps me imagine the beautiful mosaic that is God's kingdom and the joy that we'll have celebrating together. So I love that part of the Olympics. And in terms of the games themselves, even when I'm not a fan of the specific sport, I'm still inspired when I see the people who are the very most talented in their field and I get into the excitement of world records being broken, all of that, the excitement of team competition, it sucks me in. Yet, every once in a while, there's a moment during a competition that just brings everything to a halt, a moment that snaps us out of the intensity of a contested match or race, and it gives us a glimpse into a different kind of beauty. One of those moments occurred during the 2016 Summer Games in Rio, and it was during the women's 5,000-meter qualifying race. More than halfway through the, the race, which is about three miles, the runners were all bunched up together um, on the inside part of the track, very closely um, competing, and they were so close, in fact, that two of the runners collided. So it was Nikki Hamblin from New Zealand. She went down. 
And in the process, Abby D'Agostino from the United States was tripped and she fell on top of Hamblin. And when this happened, D'Agostino stood up, she jumped up and looked forward to see the pack of runners was pulling away from her. But she reached back to Hamblin, who appeared hurt, and she helped her up to her feet. And for a few seconds, the two of them resumed the race, but pretty quickly, D'Agostino appeared to realize that she was in pain. She had actually been hurt, and so she fell. And we see in this picture, you see that Hamblin, who had started to move forward, she glanced back to see if D'Agostino was still coming along. And when she saw her in pain, she turned around and went to her side, which you see here in the photo. Nope, that's me, but it was there. <laughs> I'm not stopping to help a runner at the moment. But despite being far behind and injured, both of these women eventually finished the final mile. And D'Agostino actually ran into the arms of Hamblin when she crossed the finish line. And they shared words of encouragement as they embraced each other. And they actually, these two did not know each other before these Olympics, but they quickly bonded because of the genuine care that they demonstrated for one another because they recognized the well-being of the other was more important than winning. So even though they finished way behind the rest of the pack, the Olympic Committee determined that their actions to help each other earned them the opportunity to advance to the final round. Their unexpected moment of mutual compassion was widely recognized as one of the highlights of those summer games. In fact, a website for running fanatics, which I would not normally read, but I happened to consult, um, a website for running fanatics, they ranked it as the number one moment for the games. Ranked it even above world records being shattered and other superstars. And you probably can think of other instances, we could tell other stories, where we've seen throughout the years these moments that capture our collective attention when people reach out in sincere kindness and the games suddenly look trivial in comparison to the importance of valuing a person. And I think moments like these are powerful because they shake us out of a competition mindset and demonstrate what really matters in life. Accolades and admiration are exciting, but when we see love for one's neighbor in action, especially in unexpected moments, it just reframes everything. Examples of people caring for others, even when it might disadvantage their own standing, moves us with emotion, because these moments disrupt the norms of personal ambition and they create cracks in our competitive worldview to give us a glimpse into another way. And that way is the way of Jesus. When we get those glimpses of the way of Jesus, we get to ask ourselves, what is the real goal in this race before us? What's the true goal that we ought to pursue and how do we achieve it? The Apostle Paul seeks to answer those questions in his letter to the Philippians. And so this morning, we are going to consider what this section of Scripture in Philippians describes as our goal and what it takes for us to reach that goal. So let's look together at Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. It says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. 
that statement, that charge, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is such a powerful challenge to Christians across time. As I've been studying the passage the last few weeks, I've felt convicted by that challenge. Like I just wanna post that statement at my computer and on my refrigerator before I hit a send button on a text or an email. I wish there was a little box that just popped up and said, are you conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Will be so helpful because I am not Christ and I am human. So that means I say hurtful things and I fight for my own way sometimes without pausing to think about others. But I want to live and be like Jesus in my interactions. And an important part of living a life worthy of our calling means setting ourselves on the correct goal. And that goal, according to Paul, is to strive together for the gospel and the values of the kingdom of God. Gospel means good news. In particular, it means the good news of Jesus who has made salvation possible and ushered in the kingdom of God. And Jesus, because of who he is, Competition, as usual, has been interrupted. We've been given a vision of who God is and what's really important. Jesus taught us that the kingdom is summed up with the inseparable commands to love God and love others. They go together, they cannot be separated. And that's what we strive for individually and collectively as followers of Christ. Paul says in his letter, that if we're striving together for the gospel of Christ, meaning to love God and love others, then we have no reason to fear those who might oppose us. In reference to this passage in Philippians, the famous theologian uh, Karl Barth said this. He said, Christians do not strive against anybody, nor for anybody either, but for the faith of the gospel. Something is wrong if Christianity becomes an us versus them game good guys versus bad guys. Us versus them works for a soccer match, but it does not make sense when we're living out Jesus' example. So here Bart's quote again. He says, Christians do not strive against anybody, nor for anybody either, but for the faith of the gospel. It's a helpful reminder to be careful, to keep our focus on Jesus and remember his call to love even those whom we might want to consider enemies. Once Paul has clarified the Christian goal of striving for the gospel of Jesus, his letter continues on with a guide for how we can fulfill this big goal. He says this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. According to Paul, unity is critical to the Christian life. In fact, unity is a prominent recurring theme throughout Paul's letters to various churches, not just this church, but a bunch of them. And you know me, I really like understanding the historical context of any passage of scripture that we're studying before we rush to apply it to our current situation. So let's take just a minute to understand why Paul was calling the Philippian church to strive together in unity. What is it that they were facing that made that an issue? Well, both Paul and the church in Philippi, they were facing adversity. 
When he wrote this letter, Paul was currently in prison because of his missionary work. So Paul knew very personally what it meant to suffer for the gospel. And just several years before the writing of this letter, God had led Paul to share about Jesus to a small number of Jewish women who met regularly for prayer in this city of Philippi. So it was a young church that he's writing to. And in Philippi, almost everyone in the city was either Greek or Roman. It was a popular place for military folks to retire. It was a very, very small Jewish population that was there. So small there wasn't even a synagogue. But there was this small group of Jewish women that faithfully met to pray. And God brought Paul there to those women. And they heard Paul talk about Jesus, and they were baptized. You may have heard the name Lydia as you've read the New Testament, and she was a businesswoman who was part of this small group. So Paul visited this group that began to expand, certainly. Uh, He visited them three times and developed friendships with them as they grew to include men and women, Jews and Gentiles, and there's record of their generosity even though many of them were poor. And so as he writes this letter to them, He wrote because the church in Philippi was um, facing harassment from their neighbors due to their minority status. It was hard for them to persevere when it seemed like Roman power was against them. But more urgently, Paul wrote the letter because they were fighting within the church amongst themselves. That was the real pressing issue. The letter mentions a disagreement between two leaders in the church and that others in the church had started taking sides. The church was facing a polarizing division. There were even arguments among them about who was a proper Christian, and there were tests for figuring out who was a real Christian. Their troubles were likely similar to the divisions that have followed the church with new generations, whether it's been matters of interpretation, preferences, or even personalities, the church has unfortunately faced divisions. So Paul wrote to encourage the church in Philippi to focus on their goal of the gospel. And he explained that the way to stay on that path was to strive for unity. He makes it clear that in this letter, he makes it clear that in order to honor their calling as Christ followers, they are going to need each other. The mission of God is not a solo event. The mission of God is about each other and it's fulfilled together. The Christian life is life together. Because we are united in Christ, we are united to one another. And unity is one of those terms that I find kind of tricky, maybe because it can be manipulated into silencing discussion or forcing people to conform. It can be used that way. So I know I'm not alone when I recoil at any misunderstandings of unity. However, unity does not require uniformity. Biblical unity has lots of room for diversity in our personalities and our contributions and other things. Here's the key though. Biblical unity is found through pursuing our united purpose. My best attempt to define unity, I tried to think of how can, I, how can I say this well? And I like to write. So here's my best attempt to define unity. It's a persevering collection of diverse people living out a clear purpose. It's a clarity of mission lived out in a community that's committed to the well-being of one another. 
And sometimes we do this really well, and it's good to celebrate that. I think about how Westwood is made up of people who grew up with a wide range of religious and denominational backgrounds. And, you know, if I hadn't asked you to share your backgrounds instead of your favorite um, summer games sports, we would have heard so many stories of different uh, backgrounds that we've grown up with. But yet we've all been drawn together in friendship and our shared mission practically impacts the world beyond ourselves through ministry efforts here, near, and far because we are focused on the gospel of Jesus. But if we're honest, we would admit that unity can be difficult for us also, just as it was for the church in Philippi. And so let's keep reading Paul's thoughts about unity as the next verses identify the key ingredients of how to cultivate a healthy community. So in order to be unified in our goal of living out the gospel of Jesus, Paul says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This is the roadmap, if you will, that scripture provides for how we reach the goal of striving together for the gospel. We keep personal ambition in check and we humbly value the needs of others. Rather than acting only on behalf of our own advantage, we think about the needs of the people around us. And we are willing to receive when we have need as well. Because serving on behalf of others is a hallmark of following Jesus. Developing the spiritual practice of serving others allows us to deepen our personal faith as well as elevate the gospel. Richard Foster is one of my favorite writers about the spiritual disciplines, and he says, that when we serve others, we're developing the ability to say no to the world's games of promotion. And it abolishes our need and desire for a pecking order. Would you agree that there is just sort of this palpable struggle for importance in our broader culture? We just feel that, right? That we puff up and demand attention often, ironically, when we feel afraid or weak. But if we know God's faithful and secure love, then we're free to humbly serve those in need and it allows us to free ourselves from that pecking order game. And I think also when I'm thinking of humility, I think of Foster's description of submission. It's really helpful for me. He describes it this way. He says, it's the freedom to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. Yes. Listen to what he says here too. He says, the obsession to demand that all things go the way we want them to go is one of the greatest bondages in human society today. I just think that's such a powerful thing to remember as we struggle for importance because as we humbly submit to one another out of mutual love, we honor each person, the value of each one. It's not that My own self is any less valuable, but we are equally loved by God, and so we mutually submit to one another. So this doesn't mean that we become doormats or we don't speak up for our own needs, and I think it's wise that we have boundaries around when and to whom we submit. But with those wise boundaries, we can develop a humble, Christ-like character when we don't consider ourselves better than another because we open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to the people around us and see them as God's beloved. And it's because of our shared commitment to Christ that we have a commitment to the well-being of our neighbors, even those with whom we might disagree. 
I think many of us have been disheartened about how divided Christians have been throughout the pandemic. Partisan politics are threatening the unity of the church in America. What if Christians, regardless of our partisan identities, what if we unified around the kingdom goal of loving others? It would not necessarily immediately answer questions about how to best love others. We would probably still have difficult conversations about that, but having the unified goal that reflects Christ's command to love God and love others serves for us as guardrails that prevent us from veering way off towards division. So whatever is ahead with the pandemic or any other challenge that is going to be faced by us, let's do a spirit check within ourselves and within our communities and ask, are we conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of Christ? And are we striving toward the kingdom value of loving others? We will likely still have different ideas about how to best care for others, but at least we'll remember our shared biblical focus and be anchored by the unified purpose to embody Christ's love in a hurting world. In John 17, Jesus prayed that his followers would be unified so that the world might believe in Jesus and the hope and the kingdom of God. And I think I find it sobering to remember that how we treat one another is intimately connected to our witness. Our unity in the spirit, which is made possible through Christ's sacrificial love, it strengthens the reach of the gospel. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, he wrote a beautiful book called Life Together. Some of you may have read it. If you haven't, I recommend it to you. But he offered several principles for keeping our ambitions, our self-ambitions in check and elevating humility. So these principles are helpful guides, I think, for Christian humility. And he suggests first, watch our words. This means that we have to watch our propensity to get caught up in personal attacks, and that includes being careful to avoid demeaning other Christ followers. And in today's world, I think we could say not only watch our tongues, right? We say that a lot, watch what we say to one another, but we could also say to ourselves, watch our typing fingers as we're poised to text or post. That simple command to watch or to beware it causes us to just pause and consider our intentions as well as the possible impacts that we may have on the reputation of Jesus. That's what's at stake sometimes, the reputation of Jesus. And then second, when we're thinking of life together, remember our shared sin and our shared grace. Life together would be oppressive if we expected one another to be perfect all the time, right? What an impossible burden, ever being perfect. No, uh, we are not perfect and we should have high expectations that we treat each other well, but when we hurt one another, which we will, let's be humble enough to ask for forgiveness. And just as we have been forgiven, life together involves regular mercy toward one another. My husband likes to quote Ruth Graham, who was known to say this, a happy marriage is the union of two great forgivers. And John and I have been married for nearly 21 years, and we put that maxim into practice many a time. That's part of our principles for life together in our family, being great forgivers. And then third, Bonhoeffer suggests that we should listen to understand. He says, listen long and patiently 
so that we can understand the needs of others. One of the most helpful pieces of advice that I've received and then share is to listen to understand, not to listen to prepare an argument. Do you know what I mean by that? Right? So sometimes when we're in the midst of a conflict, we're so busy preparing our next point, getting our defense ready and how we're going to come back, that we can't fully absorb what we need to hear in order to understand a situation. So it's helpful to listen not only for words, but to listen for emotions and deeper concerns that are below the surface. Too often, I think we get stuck at the level of exchanging talking points and we just spin our wheels. So putting aside our selfishness, as Paul says, includes a desire to sincerely understand one another and address the root fears or insecurities that often fuel our divisions. A final principle offered by Bonhoeffer is to be open to interruptions, particularly by those in need. Let's not feel like our schedules or our routines are so precious that we can't stop to care for people at unexpected times in ways that can be a blessing. And let's not be so consumed with our own importance that we can't stop to receive care when we need it. A few weeks ago, Pastor Ben Griffin challenged us to make unhurried quality time a priority. And that's been important. I'm learning to create margins in my own life so that I'm, I'm able to joyfully respond when those unexpected deep conversations arise, when a neighbor needs something practical, like a meal or a ride, or when I myself need to receive care. Now I think because scripture has several images of the Christian life as a race at various points in the New Testament, it's really common to picture a person running alone to strive towards victory when we hear that, that imagery of running the race seeing that person alone. If you were to close your eyes, maybe that's what would pop up. But I think the picture that I showed earlier is actually a very helpful reminder of how we're supposed to run our race based on what we've been taught by Jesus and Paul. Stopping and helping one another, mutually taking turns, caring and encouraging as we strive towards that goal. Because the rat race of competing for personal advantage is ultimately unfulfilling it will sweep us into a perpetual struggle for needing more, more accolades, more attention, anything that might make us feel secure. But it aims us towards the wrong finish line. Our goal is to humbly place ourselves and before God and place the kingdom of God above our own self-ambition and in doing so, conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of Christ. So Paul connects his charge for developing this humble community with the character of Christ. It's only through Christ and understanding him that we're able to do this. So the next verses, Paul says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If anyone had claims to importance, it was Jesus, right? He was fully defined, fully part of the triune God. But the true character of God that we see in Jesus is sacrificial love that radical, other-oriented, choice-based love that reached out to the weak and the lost, which is us, you and me, 
and suffered in our place and ultimately over, overcame the effects of sin and even death. In a few minutes, we're gonna share communion together. And when we share in communion, it's our collective expression of remembering what Christ has done on our behalf. He humbled himself out of love and compassion that we might be saved. And it's because of our new life in him that we are now called to live a life worthy of this by drawing together in humility, love, and the shared goal of seeing God's kingdom come. And so as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, to remember Christ's sacrifice, I'm going to read again for you the passage that we've been studying this morning. And I invite you just where you are to close your eyes. Just allow this to be a meditation for the morning and allow um, this, this passage to just breathe gratitude and assurance of God's love into your soul. So let's receive Paul's words to the church as a message to us. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Gracious God, we are overwhelmed by your love. You suffered so that all who put their hope and trust in you can have life. And so, Lord, prepare our hearts to receive this bread and the cup with gratitude for our salvation made possible through your humble love. Lord, we confess our sin. We confess our struggles to love one another. Just as you have forgiven us, help us to forgive ourselves and others. Help us be unified in our purpose and love for you and for one another so that the beauty of your kingdom will break through the pain in our world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.